Welcome to today's St. Paul's Church of the Voyager podcast. I'm Pastor Rob Fiesler, and I am glad that you are listening today. What do you consider to be the most terrifying words of Jesus? Now, wait, don't. Because we do not normally put the word Jesus and the word terrifying in such close proximity. I want to make sure you understand what I'm asking. I'm not asking what you consider to be the most terrifying words of Scripture. I think there'd be far too many to choose from. And I am not asking what you consider to be the most terrifying words in the New Testament. Because then you might think of something written by the Apostle Paul or a story from Acts or something that comes from the book of Revelation. So to be clear, what I am asking you is this. What do you consider to be the most terrifying words that Jesus ever said? I want you to feel free to email or text me what comes to mind for you. But I can tell you that after nearly three decades of ministry experience, and not including a lifetime spent growing up in the church, I would say that many church members would find that Jesus' most terrifying words come just two verses beyond what many of them find to be Jesus' most reassuring words. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. That's John 3.16, of course. But then in John 3.18, Jesus adds, those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now, those words of Jesus lie at the root of much evangelical angst. Not for us, of course, we've said the magic words, but, but out of concern for those who have not yet claimed faith, who have not responded. And, and you know how this goes. What if someone dies tonight without having heard the good news and, and then ends up eternally separated from Jesus? And what if that someone is especially near and dear to our hearts? If you were here in the sanctuary this morning, I would ask you for a show of hands if you are or have ever been vexed by that question. I'd raise my hand. To those who ask me, I will often say that I think that we can trust God, God as revealed in Jesus Christ, to do the right thing. The most loving thing, the most wise thing, the most compassionate thing available to God in each and every case. Because nothing is impossible for God, right? Not even, I should think, 
a post-mortem turn towards the light of the world. And, and I would remind us that our friend and theologian in residence, Dr. Michael Lodal, has pointed out that in our doctrinal heritage, John Wesley affirmed that people will be judged according to the light they've actually been given. That no one will be judged according to the light that they have not been given. That's a bit of a double negative, but I think you understand. Nevertheless, Jesus' words in John 3.18 can cause us to worry about the fate of those outside and beyond us, those who have not yet professed faith in God's only Son. But for all of us who do claim faith that Jesus is Lord, I think that his most terrifying words come in the midst of Matthew 7, 21 through 29. The words that he speaks at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. I've asked Admiral Chip Miller to read Matthew 7, 21 through 29 for us this morning. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many deeds of power in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Go away from me, you evildoers. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had not been founded on rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was its fall. Now when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astounded at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one that does the will of my Father in heaven. And then Jesus seems to pile on, making it clear with this wrenching possibility that, that even to some who call him Lord, Lord, he will declare, I, I never knew you. Go away from me. In a forthcoming book, uh, Dr. Lodal writes, the point of such a teaching is to drive home its critical existential import for those of us who do hear rather than to speculate on the fate of those who do not. With these words of Jesus, the assertion that we will be judged according to the light that we have been given takes an uncomfortable turn for us who do call Jesus Lord, Lord, but who fail to do the will 
of our Heavenly Father. <clears throat> A few weeks ago, in our regular staff meeting, Marty Horvath said something that really resonated with me, I think, with all of us. Talking about the immense challenges of this year, 2020, but especially uh, the societal strife that had just exploded upon the unjust killing of George Floyd, Marty said, I think I'm going to need to learn how to become comfortable with being uncomfortable. And in light of Matthew 7, 21 and 22, and, and with a slight edit, I'd say that I think we all need to learn how to become comfortable with being uncomfortable. Especially if we take seriously what, what Jesus is saying at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. That it is absolutely presumptuous to think that our declaration, Jesus is Lord, automatically guarantees that we will be known by our Lord when it counts. Indeed, I'd recommend comfort with being uncomfortable as a good practice or a good posture for the next seven weeks as we explore the theme, a more Christ-like Christianity. My intention today is to focus on how St. Paul's might become a more Christ-like church. Because I don't want to lead you astray. I would hope that no one hears Jesus say those terrifying words. Go away from me. I do not know you. And I want to thank those of you who responded to my newsletter article by emailing me and saying that you hope I don't pull any punches. Well, we'll see over the next few weeks. I have a preliminary theological observation and then three points about our scripture. And the observation is that Jesus is making it clear that orthodoxy, which means right belief or maybe correct doctrine, presumes orthopraxis, which is right acts or the right doing of God's will. Jesus describes this as, as bearing good fruit in Matthew 7, 15, and then James 2, 17 underlines that point when it says, so faith by itself, if it has not works, is dead. I've heard that there's a pastor who concludes their services of worship with the words, good news, great joy, all people, let's get to work. I think I might adopt that practice myself. We will explore the faith works issue in a few weeks, but, but how might these words of Jesus that we heard already, how might they beckon us to be a more Christ-like church? 
Well, I think firstly by reminding us that it is not and never has been all about you in the singular. Over many years, I've become increasingly uncomfortable with the question, is Jesus your personal Lord and Savior? Because I think it implies something that I doubt Jesus would affirm. Namely, that salvation is about you, singular. Note that in verse 22 of our reading, Jesus says, many will come in and, and, and say, did we not? And so the unmistakable implication of many and we is that the salvation Jesus wants us to receive is profoundly and necessarily communal, not personal. And once we see how uh, often Jesus, Jesus uses the word you in the plural form, it becomes impossible to miss. Let's just look at one example. At the start of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says to all who have gathered before him, you, plural, are the light of the world. Let your plural, light shine before others so that they may see your, plural, good works, there it is, and give glory to your, plural, Father in heaven. That's Matthew 5, 14. And everything uh, that follows in the Sermon on the Mount outlines what those good works are to include by the you that is plural. And so that is Jesus' vision for the church. A, a community so shiny with good works that even those who may never join the church can't help themselves. They just spontaneously erupt and give glory to God because they see how good are the works that we are doing. That is what Jesus wants from his church. So what do you think? Is that what you see as more and more young people absent themselves from the church? Fundamentally, if, if outsiders are not seeing our good works and giving glory to God, Jesus is not getting what he wants from the church, and we need to go back to the drawing board, which is Jesus. <laughs> Jacob Needleman writes, let me put it bluntly, it is only through inwardly developed men and women that God can exist and act in the world that we occupy. The proof for the existence of God is people inhabited by and who manifest God. That's what the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians 20.20. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We will shine when Christ is alive in us. But did you catch that? phrase in the quote. It said, inwardly developed men and women. 
And that moves us to a second way that we become a more Christ-like church. And that is when each of us realizes how it is about us individually. I know, I know. <laughs> that seems to contradict point one. But bear with me. Because the witness and well-being of the church to what Jesus has graciously called us depends upon each one of us looking inwardly to evaluate how we are either contributing to or undermining the witness of Christ's church by our individual attitudes and actions. When we keep the focus on ourselves in this regard, we will work to identify and uproot attitudes and actions that actually diminish the chances that our church will become what Jesus wants it to become. Thomas Akempis, in a classic of, of Christian spirituality, the book, The Imitation of Christ, he counsels, Keep thyself first in peace, and then thou wilt be able to bring others to peace. Have therefore a zeal in the first place over thyself. That quote comes directly from a daily reader used in the 12-step program that I regularly attend. And we in the church could really benefit from some of the deep wisdom of 12-step spirituality because a fundamental tenet of 12-step spirituality is to focus on taking our own inventory with a zeal in the first place over ourselves and to waste no time or energy taking anyone else's inventory. I think uh, of the end of the Gospel of John, there's this enigmatic scene at the very end where Peter looks at another disciple, it's an unnamed disciple, and he asks Jesus, what about him? And Jesus says, what's that to you? You follow me. It's John 21, 23. And so for all who want to spin their wheels, uh, taking everyone else's moral inventory, I think Jesus is making it absolutely clear. Why is that your business? What you need to do is follow me. Again, as the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians 2.12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And let Jesus work with everybody else on their own salvation. And so finally, do you know what happens when we learn that it's not all about you, singular, but that it is all about us, individually? Suddenly we find it within our reach to become a Jesus-shaped community a more Christ-like church. 
Because any church operating on an unspoken homogeneity principle that its members should look and, and believe and behave all in the same ways, well, that bears no resemblance whatsoever to the actual disciple community that Jesus gathered around himself. Oh my gosh, the diversity. Do you think that Jesus was wrong when he did that? Or do you think that he was trying to show us how we should be doing it? Dave Tomlinson, referencing 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4, notes this. One of the oldest metaphors for the church is as the body of Christ, where each member, each organ is different, yet contributes in that differentness to the whole expression of Christ in the world. In this beloved community, there is room for every culture and race to be valued, room for women and men to work together as equal partners. Room for gay and straight people simply to be human beings. Room for different opinions and points of view. Room for doubts and questions. And room for change and growth. And that is what happens, that is what is possible when we recognize that the church is not about you, singular, but it is about us, individually, all doing the will of Jesus' heavenly Father, our heavenly Father. I hope and pray that each one of you worshiping will take a personal inventory and embrace this invitation to help St. Paul's become a bright and shiny Christ-like church. The more that we do this, we may joyfully anticipate that when Jesus sees us face to face, he will say, oh, just look at you. I know exactly who you are. Amen.